0: Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 159 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. Today, we're we are going back to the well, um, the old content <laughs> well, a, a topic we haven't talked about in a while, but is always, a, a long-standing, long-running point of interest for us on TMK. And It's what is happening in China, in the tech sector over there? What is the Chinese state doing in regards to Regulating the tech sector—it's—it's it's, it's never a dull moment. There's always something new, always something interesting going on, to, to to varying degrees. You know, things of 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 interest that that demand critical support, but then also things that demand a bit closer of a critical eye. Um, and so we we are going to return back to that, especially with the news around some uh, very big. AI regulations that China is putting into action right now. Some of the the largest, most uh, systemic and severe regulations of AI and algorithmic decision making in the world um, that China is taking lead on right now um, in some really interesting ways. And this is, of course, Always also the, uh, something that, that Ed, 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 Ed is as a much keener watcher of this than I am. And so, um, I think, and that combined with the fact that I, I got a scratchy throat. I can't be doing a ton of, uh, energetic and enthusiastic, uh, ranting on this episode, um, so that my throat doesn't completely blow out. It's not COVID. Took a test yesterday and today. Uh it's just it's just the the winter season um is hitting me, plus a little travel bug. I did a I did something I haven't done in ages. I I I did a real like fly in, fly out situation um over the weekend. I was uh up in Brisbane, which is like a two and a half hour flight from Melbourne, flew in on Saturday early in the morning, um, got there, spoke on a panel for the at the Brisbane Writers Festival. Um, for a book launch, along with my friend Tao Fan, um, immediately went to drinks after the panel. Straight from drinks to dinner. Um, straight from dinner to after drinks, <laughs> and then got on the, went to bed, and then got on a plane the next uh, day at noon to fly back to Melbourne. So I was like in the I was in Brisbane for 24 hours, and so I, I think I'm paying the price.
1: I'm paying the price for that right now. You know, that happens though, but look, the pandemic's over. You, I mean, oh, it's not over, but it's, you know, I'm hoping, we're all hoping, it, like you said, it's just a travel bug, you know, um, you travel to a bunch of different places, you enjoyed some things, ate some good food, saw some mm-hmm. nice sights, and now you just got to recharge and rest. So yeah, no worries on that. You know, we'll t- China's fun. China's fun to talk about. This episode, I will say, it is not going to be an exhaustive Analysis of Chinese antitrust, part for a few reasons. One, because it's a little too soon to see the outcomes of some of these things. And there's a lot of a debate among the consequences and the implications and, uh, what the next moves of Ch- uh, Chinese, various Chinese regulatory authorities will be. You know, there's a lot of contestation about whether it, these are moves solely to rein in um specific tech companies, industries, or to discipline industries as a whole and get rid of disastrous capital. And these are things that we'll all you know will kinda of touch on. Um and so I haven't had the uh, I've had enough time, you know, to I guess familiarize everyone with what will what this episode will be, which will be primers and and sort of going through timelines, rationales, consequences, uh so that you get a better sense of what's bird's eye view level of what's going on in China and, and a and a lens to think through it, that is a little bit more critical and does not solely see it as a simplistic government want control economy narrative but also considering like why would a society want to control um, what is arguably the most dynamics not the right word there's a there's a whirlpool there's a vortex um, in any capital market or any sector touched by technology and sometimes that's because of genuinely disruptive uh, products and sometimes that's because of disruptive, techniques to suck up capital from elsewhere or externalize costs to other parts of the population. So I think it would make sense that an economy that is, you know, planned to an extent would want to have a close eye on it. And also because I do think, and this is something we've talked about before, there are things that can be learned from China and its tech policy. I think Cory Doctorow said in one of his threads that sadly the only thing the United States has learned from China are mechanisms of surveillance, you know, and the U.S. has little to none of those safeguards and protocols in place that China does that are... That impose regular fines, that do consistent probes, um, that block mergers, uh, that punish people for data privacy abuses in large ways. Um, I mean, they do, and they're increasingly doing so under un, under new leadership in some of the consumer advocacy groups and uh, commerce um, bureaucracies. But uh, nowhere to the extent that China does, and China does matter because I think also you know as we've talked about before on the podcast, right? A lot of people we've we've talked about research that. Tries to reframe the Great Firewall as not just as a solely a censorious authoritarian mechanism, which, yeah, you know, it is censorious, but also it's a larger part of the national security or national strategy and the industrial policy of China. And most of these decisions are at the end of the day, like China is. You know, we talked about it in our standards issue. We've talked about it in our, our our standards episode. We talked about it in our episode on Huawei. We talked about it in our episode on semiconductor chips. We talked about it in our episode on gig workers. Right? China policy on market design, on flow, on how you handle capital flow, on how you handle technological development is. First and foremost, usually concerned with uh, designing it and, and, and making sure it fits the needs of the, and the demands of the state, and that mean and that's a little bit more subtle than outright government control, right? They are trying to design certain markets and economies, and the question is for what purpose or to what extent, right? So here, you know, the major moves that have been happening have been over the past two years, right? Largely coming out of 2020. I mean, in backlash, I mean, antitrust law has been on the books, you know, for at least a decade and a half now, um, but... Coming in 2020, you know, in response to uh, Jack Ma's comments, uh, where, he, you know, he talked a lot of shit. <laughs> <laughs> he talked shit and got hit. And then everybody oh, else got God. hit, too.
0: <laughs> know, yeah, they he <laughs> talked a it, <it's>, like <laughs> it, it, It's like, he, like, like uh, Xi Jinping fucking uh, spanked the bad boy in class no. and then said, all right, everybody else got to line up and get theirs, too.
1: <laughs> Jack Ma, one of the most successful businessmen in China. Uh, um, head of this massive conglomerate Dan group, ahead of launching a IPO that was slated to be the largest IPO, started talking about how antiquated Chinese regulations were and how they were stifling innovation and uh, preventing capital from flowing and preventing and, and preventing entrepreneurs from getting up and doing what they wanted to. And then uh, he disappeared. And, uh, then (laughs) he did disappear, right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: I almost forgot about that. There was a moment there for like six months or something where it's just like, well, nobody knows where Jack Ma
1: is. Uh, Yeah. You know, I honestly didn't think he'd ever show up again, to be real with you. I know I was talking with people about it and they were like, that's ridiculous. He's like such a visible face. But I mean, I don't know, man. There's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot of billionaires that have disappeared. So, um, you know, so Alibaba got hit with, um, you know, or started getting probed, right? Um, and and 2020, that's when the SAMR, that's the State Administration of Market Regulation, right, really started to come down on uh, internet companies, on digital companies. You know, the SAMR is a company. It's it's a bureaucracy that's existed um, for, uh, since 2018, and it's had a, some shifts in its structure, authority, and position inside of the decision making that we'll we'll overview that have given it more and more power over time right but uh really its effort to regulate platform economy right is when it started to draft you know new rules after it suspended after uh, and groups IPO was suspended um and that suspension was you know partly because of these new anti-monopoly rules that the that the um Watchdog was going to issue, right? So these are anti-monopoly rules that are supposed to curb anti-competitive practices, specifically with Alibaba and Tencent, um, and their efforts to push out, crush, or kill competitors like Pinduoduo or uh, ByteDance. This resulted in like a pretty massive uh, shaving off of tech shares in China. I think something on the order of like $300 billion within a few days. Alibaba was the main company that came under scrutiny, right? Um, You know, Alibaba had been engaged in pretty deeply anti competitive practices. It had been threatening merchants um, who had uh, shops on other platforms with being kicked off um, and had been sued because of it. A good chunk of the the anti-monopoly rules were also ahead of attempts to roll out like financial technology or fintech uh, that was supposed to be able to allow the company to, to do and provide products and services uh, analogous to what a bank or a financial institution would do, right? Uh, kind of blending the rules or coming up against the rules that China has on capital flows, right? the capital controls that China has for these companies. Um, Tencent was another target of some of these rules, right? Tencent is pretty dominant, was pretty dominant. I mean, it still is, but, you know, pretty dominant in gaming and social network. Um, you know, it's, it's behind the largest or some of the largest apps, uh, most uh, notably WeChat, which is used by, what, like 1.2, 1.3 billion people, billion people. A month. Um, So this starts, you know, prompting probes or prompting investigations into anti-competitive practices that might be doing against companies like ByteDance, which is behind TikTok, right? Uh, The video sharing platform that they were offering, if there were being copycats, if there were attempts to shut Apps out of out of the WeChat ecosystem, right? If there was misuse of data, will bring us to another uh, to the categories of investigations that were being done, right? And then you know, Pinduoduo. This is an online shopping, uh, you know, marketplace uh, e-commerce platform. Uh, JD, which is another e-commerce platform, Um, and then Meituan, which we've talked we talked about, dedicated an episode to, which is you know a large platform that. Covers a lot of things. We covered. We covered specifically food delivery, right? That's where it is it been able to be the most successful and competes with Alibaba. Um, but it also provides um, point of sale stuff like tickets. These moves, or the moves from the company, or, or sorry, from the um, from the SAMR in this area, are antitrust probes, right? Uh, trying to uh, figure out whether or not these companies are crushing competition. Trying to establish modes, barriers to entry, regulating, doing regulation uh, that we would kind of have expected to be done in the U.S., right? Or have wanted to be done in the U.S. The second domain, I think, are these sort of misuse of data, user rights, data privacy concerns. Uh, These ones are overrun by the Cyberspace Administration of China. Um, This one goes back to 2013, 2014 uh runs or in in and is responsible for managing internet contents content moderation censorship um but also has a pretty strict or tries to impose a pretty strict data regime and making sure that data doesn't travel outside of the country um or isn't isn't you can't use it you, uh, a firm or some entity, legal entity, can't have the data on a discovery in some sort of proceeding or in, in uh, its apps. And so what we see here are apps like Didi, which got uh, you know, fucked. I don't really know. <laughs> is, it's not an exaggeration to say it got fucked because it was like, right. what was it? Like two days after the IPO of Didi, um, they got taken out of uh, the app store and they were no longer allowed to register new users. This was after DD's U.S. IPO, right? So they were suspended because they were violating data security rules. And then they probed a few other companies, um, some logistics company, China's Uber, yeah. Their, their yeah. IPO was like over, like a 4.5 billion dollar IPO. And, and one thing we will maybe one day talk about is the kind of like hilarious way in which DD and China crushed Uber's attempt to enter the marketplace and bled them dry and then bought out uh, Uber and ex- in exchange for a, uh, Uber getting a stake in the company, right? So D is the monopoly there, without a doubt, and controls the ride-hailing market and enjoys much more success in controlling the market than Uber or Lyft ever could have hoped for right mm-hmm.
0: and we um, when we see just as a as a footnote here uh you know we see reports right now of uber and the ceo you know dara kosher shahi uh really cracking down being like you know uber needs to be profitable in a net flow cash basis not just a adjusted EBITDA, um basis like you know what like it really sounds like they're trying to crack, like bring in like a much tougher, like management regime for, for labor, not just drivers, but like the corporate, you know, office labor at, at Uber, you know, software engineers and people. What like Dara said in that, in a statement recently that, uh, people should be seeing a job at Uber as a privilege. Um, and like, you know, they're going to start getting rid of all, you know, incentives if they don't actually lead to outcomes. Like, this it, what it sounds like to me is a uh, uh, you know a company that is finally f- confronting its mortality, but is very much in the like bargaining stage of gr- of grief right
1: now. Right, uh, yeah, <laughs> right. You had to get rid of the sci fi projects, you know. You had to get rid of all the sweets and the candies, and now comes the vegetables, which is somehow, some way making uh, money. <laughs> God help them if they figure that out. But then, you know. As we kind of talked about a little bit in our standards this, uh, episode, if you remember, there is and has been a conscious national security and industrial policy design that have intersected kind of both after the wake of partly out of the you know, ascension of Silicon Valley firms, but also the desire of the China to create its own sort of uh, supply chain that is immune from supply shocks supply shocks that might emerge in a sort of cold war or weird geopolitical conflict with the united states but also because of the surveillance um, revelations, uh, the PRISM Re- uh, revelations, the NSA um, global surveillance revelations in 2013, 2014, right? I mean, CIC is formed right after, right after this, and that's when we start to see the imposition of this data regime that does not allow data to be stored outside of the country, and then leads to the banning of other companies that might have devices which would send data overseas. And the Ascension and and the deployment of that strategy that we talked about with Huawei of the state of of state sponsored development of of indigenous development of state owned enterprises where domestic players are are prioritized and subsidized over foreign ones right Um, especially if they might be part of some supply chain that could leave Chinese products. In uh, manufacturing vulnerable to a shock or if they might be uh you know corporations that would listen to the United States and comply with uh surveillance regime ironically enough right this is you know the second kind of chunk of tech crackdowns that we're seeing or that we were seeing in this first wave right and then the third wave is that We've t- we've talked a bit about, or we've been, we've been talking a bit about how a lot of these tech companies are. There's nothing there, really, right? They are offering. They're using technology to get around regulations so that they can operate in a in a domain that they would otherwise have to subject themselves to re- regulation. Saying, "Oh, I'm a tech company. I'm an internet company. I don't have to abide by traditional financial rules. I don't have to abide by traditional media rules. I don't have to tra- uh, abide by traditional educational rules," right? Um, This was one of the things that Ant caught Ant Groups that caught the ire of the CPC at Ant Group, right? That fintech that they were trying to the the fintech that they were trying to roll out, where they were trying to insist that they weren't a bank or they weren't a financial institution, but they were just a technology firm, but the technology firm was offering services that other financial institutions did and had to abide by strict capital requirements when they were carrying out, right?
0: Even even ahead of uh, their IPO, Ant was up until the IPO known as Ant Financial, and then they yeah. dropped the financial uh-huh. from their uh-huh. name ahead of the IPO. Uh, you know, very very standard, just like uh, sleight of hand, but in a like really. A very clumsy way that that we often see with these tech companies as they uh, bend over backwards to define themselves as tech companies rather than define themselves as the uh, what they actually do. And and so this is
1: why you know Ant Group was, uh, you know, like you pointed out, Ant Financial um, was the financial arm or the fintech arm, or more accurately, of Alibaba. The IPO was going to be for like $35, $36 billion. Um, there was a real uh, hope there until, that, uh, ridic- until the speech at that summit um, that this would catalyze a new wave maybe of tech companies uh, that would be at the frontier of uh, this sort of regulatory arbitrage that we see in the United States and Europe, where we see everywhere else. In the world, essentially, but I think also one thing that was lost in some of the reaction to it was that the company, um, the company was uh, had a business model that had questions, right? So, or that was questionable, right? And financial, you know, on the one hand, already you don't, I don't, we don't want fintech companies, right? We don't want uh, financial firms masquerading as technology companies. We don't want them doing that because they tend to offer their services. Um, in ways that allow them to escape regulatory scrutiny, um, and also, uh, uh, to avoid, uh, limits, uh, on how, on how they're loaning the money, on who they're giving the money to, uh, that they then will spin as a limiting or exclusive, right? And so Ant pitched itself, right? As, uh, as a, as a loaner, as a creditor who's providing loans, who's engaged in microfinance, who is helping um, you know, catalyze the, uh, you know, catalyze like access or financial inclusion and, and democratizing finance, you know, but the reality is, you know, one thing that kept uh, emerging in the, or that emerged in the investigation and in the probe was, you know, predatory lending that what they would actually do is, you know, for example, if you wanted a loan with, with Ant Financial, or if you wanted some sort of, um, some, you know, to use one of their products, right? And your your credit score is calculated. You know, typically credit scores are calculated with, you know, what kind of debts do you have? What kind of accounts do you have? What's your income? What's your payment history? Um, how old are these accounts to determine your credit worthiness? Not, not saying that's a good system, just that's, you know, what they do, of course. And instead, Ant Financial would uh, rely on... Um, how you spend your money. And so what this means is that like the more money you spend, right? Uh, the higher your score is and the more likely they'd be or more willing they'd be to provide you with a loan. And and this would be part of a, a predatory lending scheme, you might say, right? Where, you know, the people who are most likely to spend the most are not necessarily people who might have the most credit worthiness, but you're targeting them with loans or you're you're pushing loans onto them uh so that you can uh insist that you're being conclusive and this is analogous to like what we see with crypto what we see with um the two thousand eight shadow banking. Uh, with the financial crisis and the shadow banking institutions behind them, what we saw, I think, in an analysis penned by Paul Krugman about how one of the core arguments of crypto and the mortgage uh, crisis was that these things were heralded as inclusion, even though they were really just financial speculative instruments that were created by bankers and by businesses to solve a regulatory problem, which is like, how do you get around reserve limits and how do you get around our limitations on who we can loan to so that we can keep providing loans and and fill out the books for these profitable new uh, assets that we've created. One way to do that is to insist that what you're doing is you're providing groups who wouldn't otherwise have loans with loans, even if you're targeting people who have a high risk of not being able to pay back their loan because of your ridiculous schemes, um, which Ant Financial engaged in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, two footnotes to that. One is, I mean, what you're describing here as well as exactly what like Buy Now, Pay Later is doing in terms of providing loans that they claim are not loans. I, I just read a report that um, in California alone, something like 93% of personal line, personal credit loans um, it, uh, are through Buy Now, Pay Later companies. Um, which I mean, that's, that's absurd, right? And But they they claim that they don't do loans they uh like they claim that they're like budgeting tools you know stuff like that but but they're you know 93% of personal cre- of personal loans in California lo- uh, uh just California buy now pay later but another footnote to that is to the ant financial aspect um is the fact that i mean one way they're able to do this and what they were the data they were able to leverage to um start doing a lot of Shadow banking in a lot, you know, uh, to, to cark back to our episodes last week, um, it is because Ant Financial, uh, is the, um, parent company that owns Alipay, um, which is the world's largest mobile on, uh, mobile online payment system, uh, whole, you know, something like, you know, a, a billion or more users of Alipay, um, you know, largest mobile payment service has a majority share of third party payment, uh, market in China. Um, it's continuing to grow. I mean, it's one of those things that uh, people use Alipay for everything. It's also like a, uh, kind of, it's one of these super apps, um, where you can do everything within the Alipay ecosystem without ever losing the app you can you know pay bills you can order food you can get a ride uh, you can buy you know tick like air, airline tickets and hotels like you can do everything within within the this ecosystem which provides alipay and and financial and the parent parent company of alibaba uh, a, a lot of fucking data about people's lifestyles, their spending habits, their day-to-day routines, their relationships. Um, uh, Alipay was also, you know, if we, if you remember from like around, you know, 2018, 20, you know, 2019, around the time where there's a lot of talk about the social credit scoring system in China, one of the biggest... And uh, one of the earliest and biggest kind of ver- versions of this was called Zima Credit or Sesame Credit, which was an Alipay service or you know uh, application um, that was again kind of using data collected from the Alipay ecosystem to create these like social credit scoring systems and stuff like that. And so, I mean, this just also this just is a you know providing a footnote to to what you're talking about here, Ed, in terms of like how something like Alipay, uh, how something like Ant um, kind of was, you know, where they were at uh, in terms of the market, in terms of their dominance, in terms of the data they were collecting and and having access to the products they were creating on top of that data, um, you know, all this stuff that they were doing um, in the run-up to uh, getting slapped down by um xi jinping um and by china's kind of larger uh industrial policy and and regulation like tech regulations
1: We'll shift a bit now that we've done some of this background on some of the companies, right? So I guess a bit of like an overview of some of the changes that have emerged from 2020 to 2021, right? And now that we've covered some of like the motivating factors. And I, one other thing I should also say is that all of this, all of the the tech crackdown um, or this aspect of the tech crackdown, because there are other aspects, right? Um, other reporting has talked about... Crackdowns in other sectors where you know firms also say that they're tech companies, as well as crackdowns on social media, crackdowns on entertainment on um, on expression and so on and so forth right but here um, one thing to also say about the motivating factor for why tech is handled the way it is, I think like it is worth taking seriously. Um, some of the speeches that Xi Jinping has given over the past two years about the digital economy, right? Um, over the past over the past few years, uh, there has been you know movement from him and others to to insist on reigning in the economy, um, reducing the amount of debt, reducing the amount of corruption, uh, revitalizing manufacturing as jobs are leaving and going to other South Asian countries. You know, a, l- a good old little uh, rabble rousing with the class war, um, targeting some billionaires um, who are corrupt or maybe too opulent, or in you know, one way or another not loyal enough to the CPC. But yeah, so like these are these are you know these are some motivating factors for why tech itself is being targeted because, as we've talked about, especially with the semiconductor issue, if you're concerned with industrial policy and national security, um, and you want to immunize immunize yourself. Or insulate yourself from potential geopolitical moves by the United States or other coalitions of powers, and you want to assert dominance over the development of standards, and you want to ensure that you have some say in how they and how future technologies are designed, um, and you want your firms to be dominant on the global level. Right? Then it makes sense to reorder the dominant, to reorder the industry at home. Because even though there is a good amount of state-led development, there are firms that resemble U.S. tech firms in that they they are valuable um, on markets, but not actually, or it can be argued, what the actual value overall is there in uh in preserving them. If you're trying to finely tune capital markets, you know you can't afford. For DD to take a massive hit, and it probably should. If you are interested in trying to finely tune, uh, finely tune markets around some of these tech firms, or or that could be one rationale behind it. Um, but I think now you know you want to look at what has happened over the past year, especially after the probes, and 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 after the fine what was it, two point eight billion dollar fine on Alibaba, you know the half a billion dollar fine on Meituan, you know so. You know, law, uh, lawfare blog has a, has a good review of, um, of the past year of antitrust moves, uh, modifications to the AML, uh, modifications to the fines, uh, new probes that they've been doing, new impositions of, uh, data security law and, uh, personal information protecting law that DSL and the PIPLs refer to them from here, as well as the shape of what then We'll talk about got proposed in twenty twenty two, which is um, a pretty big set of algorithmic governance regulations.
0: Yeah, I want to just quickly say, I mean, as we get through this, I think it's 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 instructive to keep in mind that like very different political philosophies. That are underlying these the the approach the the kind of three big approaches to AI and tech regulation we see in the world right now. There's a American approach, there's a European approach, and there's a Chinese approach, and each of these are really uh, motivated by three quite different political philosophies of of regu- uh, of regulation um and and uh a kind of stance towards tech you know no surprise that the american approach is extremely pro market pro competitive very hands off um this is why we also see very little you know we'll get through we'll get to all this in more detail but at a kind of higher level um just to orient us this is why we see very little movements in american regulation on ai you know at best we see um some some proposed legislations by people like Amy Klobuchar saying that you know like you know we need algorithm you know we need reg- we need algor- algorithms to be regulated we need to make sure that they're they're actually fair and accurate and stuff but like this stuff gets caught up in, in uh, congressional hearings and like and committees and like you know it doesn't even hasn't even made it to a vote yet and could still be years away until anything actually happens um, because there's a very much a kind of like Hands off um, laissez faire approach here, where they don't want, like, they prioritize the economy and the ideology of innovation over regulation and restriction. And so they're very, you know, the the US is very reticent to do anything, um, but except for like kind of soft reforms around self governance and coaxing them into coming up with like principles of AI ethics, that kind of shit. The European approach is very. Uh, I think is, like, instantiated in part through the GDPR, you know, General Data Protection Regulation, which is a very, like, individual rights-based regulation. You know, it's about, like, preserving personal privacy and individual rights um, in the kind of data landscape, which means that its rules tend to be very, like, micro scale and very individual while they might be they may be applied as a whole to the like the whole tech company sector right like you know if you want to do business as a tech company in Europe then you need to adhere to the GDPR but these rules are very much like they're consumer protection rules with the kind of like steroids of a European human rights um, kind of focus. You know, like injected into them. I mean, I think that's how we have to understand it. Which means, again, they're not structural, right? They're they're more like um, amelior, ameliorating harms, uh, empowering consumers with with a bit more rights, um, or preserving their their rights in the marketplace. That's the European approach as well. The European approach is also somewhat like nationalistic in the sense of like they don't want big American companies coming in and like, you know, stomping around, uh, uh, you know, suppressing the European, uh, you know, European homegrown innovation um, through monopolistic practices, uh, you know, spreading. Uh, kind of American hegemony through dom- you know through market domination. So there's a bit of like a uh, you know save Europe protectionism uh, kind of element to their their market reg- their their market regulations as well. The kind of Chinese uh, regulatory philosophy here is is you know the the term um, that that Xi has been using a lot lately is common prosperity. Right. And this is about, uh, a focus on societal well-being. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, common prosperity has become like one of the key ideological watchwords in a lot of Xi's speeches and a lot of, um, internal, uh, you know, CBC documents of meetings and strat- and strategies, um, around like this kind of push towards, uh, you know, Xi wanting to close the wealth gap, uh, you know, encourage, um, you know, sometimes forcefully, um, you know, w- uh, wealthy people and businesses to give back more to society, uh, you know, to promote something like a societal vision of well-being and and common prosperity. You know, alongside that is this kind of Constant refrain for the last year of Xi talking about the disorder, the quote-unquote disorderly expansion of capitalism. Uh, this is a, a phrase that he has been that he's used a lot in the last year um, to talk largely about big about big tech, right? About the tech sector. Trying to remember, he he said something like the um, a barbaric growth or something like that of the tech sector. That's the term, barbaric growth of platforms. Um, and so here, you know, him talking about this, you know, disorderly expansion of capital and barbaric growth, promoting common prosperity. You know, this is, in a lot of ways, the underlying philosophy of regulation here is, on one hand, it's one about industrial policy. On one hand, it is a one about kind of like um, state you know, state control and state guidance of these uh, tech sectors. On one hand, there there does honestly strike me as a bit of like a Zubafian uh, mm-hmm. aspect to yeah. uh, Xi's approach here, because. It's, it's you know, it's the way that Zuboff talks about surveillance capital as a quote-unquote rogue mutation of an otherwise like orderly and just capitalism. And it's very interesting to see Xi saying the same kind of stuff around like the problem is not capitalism or or capital. The problem is uh, disorderly expansion and barbaric growth, Um, which again, I think, I'm very sorry to the to the tankies who love to listen uh, and come after us
1: uh, in the mentions you are afterwards. You're now listening to it's, this machine kills communism.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, that is literally what uh, a tankie has said. Uh, anyway, it's the same I, one. I, it's it's the same dude. He leaves reviews, comments, and uh, replies on other appearances that I make elsewhere. <laughs>
0: Uh, so we see you, we hear okay, right. you, and we see you. Um, <laughs> you are dare. heard, you are seen. <laughs> uh, but I hate to say it, but uh, you know the 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 point here is is that G is. Uh, I think this is more more evidence that a lot of what G is actually interested in doing in terms of industrial policy is. Uh, uh a like a state capitalism right like a state controlled state-led um capitalism so and you know uh in a way and I, I think that this manifests in a in a few different ways right that like you know you've got uh you know major, you know, new laws like the, um, the, you know, the China personal information protection law, you know, which is the new big data privacy law in China, um, that, you know, is being used to kind of like confront these tech companies and secure, uh, you know, do, stu- you know, enforce cybersecurity and personal information protection and privacy. Um, you know it's being applied to Alibaba and Tencent and so on but you know at the same time it's not applied equally to everybody acting here because China's state agencies are the country's largest data um, own you know con- collectors and processors. Um, on the other hand as well you know we see uh, this manifesting as Ed was talking about right that like the Chinese economy is taking massive hits. Um, and you know the stock of Chinese companies are are, are you know being shed by billions, you know hundreds of billions over you know, like something like over a trillion dollars um, since the beginning of what we're you know these new regulations over the last couple of years that Ed's been outlining. Um, you know, like one point five trillion dollars or something like that has been you know shorn off the economy because of it. But what this shows is that while you know, this would be suicide in the US to to do something you know like this what it shows here is that she is less interested um in that and instead you know prioritizing things like common prosperity uh you know but looking more i think more like uh you know China the 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 Chinese state regaining a larger control of um, the direction of innovation and the direction of the market. There is a really interesting quote here in the Lawfare blog um, article um, that we mentioned earlier. Where they write, Xi may find these losses bearable because the economic burden is borne primarily by the consumer technology sector rather than what he views as strategically critical sectors like semiconductors and aeronautics. Companies in the quote-unquote hard tech sectors like Huawei and Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corporation or SMIC have largely escaped regulatory scrutiny. As Jude Blanchett of the Center for Strategic and International Studies puts it, quote, Xi doesn't care whether people can have their meals delivered 14% faster or if it is 7% easier to hell a car. So, you know, Xi is interested in terms of like industrial policy, uh, you know, securing critical, uh, manufacturing, uh, capabilities and sectors, right? Like, uh, his interests are very different than what we tend to think of as the interest of the tech sector innovation, which are actually like the interest of VCs um, and CEOs, uh, which is, you know, do what we're already doing, but do it like X percentage points faster, um, you know, or whatever, you know, these really minor just like put more gasoline in the tank, put, you know, uh, hit the pedal a little bit harder, um, you know, but it's all short termism and it's all, you know, it's, it's innovation, well, uh, you know, to me it's it's stagnation dressed up as innovation is like a lot of what we see with platforms. Um but Xi, on the other hand in the regulatory philosophy in China is taking a larger uh kind of more systemic, more structural, more societal um kind of view of what the sector should look like and what its direction should be. So That that's my little uh, uh, outline here of like the three big kind of regulatory political philosophies, um, especially as they relate to tech that we see happening right now.
1: So 2021, we as we talked about and introduced SAMR, levied its fines on Alibaba and Meituan. Right? They then significantly scaled up enforcement. Um, fail. Uh, they 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 find companies for failing to notify uh, authorities about transactions that might have market consequences. Um, the vast majority of them were platform companies like Alibaba, Baidu, Didi, Meituan, Suning, and JD.com. And then in February 2021, they released anti-monopoly guidelines for the platform economy sector, and that this was going to provide a guidance for enforcement right, in the digital economy, in the tech sector, in the platform economy, whatever it is you want to call it. And for anyone following along, this is Gibson Dunn's uh, Antitrust in China 2021 review. From here, right, it, this also involves, um, on the merger front, as they write, that the SAMR reviewed about 700 transactions, put remedies on four of them, and blocked one transaction, which is the third time ever that China's antitrust authority has done so, and anticipated there would be an increase in it. In enforcement because the anti-monopoly bureau was elevated in the powers and authority that it had within the Chinese bureaucracy. So in 2021, in October, uh, there was a draft amendment to the AML, which is the country's anti-monopoly law. And they opened this for public comment and then plan to adopt it or plan to adopt the changes in 2022. So in 2021, some of the changes or overviews will, will start with the platform guidelines. A- A- SM, sorry, S, I was about to say ASMR. SAMR. <laughs> SAMR um, is specifically issues in February guidance on how AML applies to digital platforms, e commerce platforms, delivery platforms, social media companies. And as Gibson Dunn writes, the platform guidelines confirm that transactions involving variable interest entities, VIE, are subject to merger review and grant SAMR broad discretion to investigate transactions involving digital platforms. They also set out the types of agreements that may constitute monopoly agreements in the platform economy context, some of which go beyond the traditional written or verbal agreements or meeting of minds. For example, under the platform guidelines, the use of technical methods, data, and algorithms may constitute a horizontal or vertical monopoly agreement and a most favored nation MFN clause may constitute a vertical monopoly agreement. In addition, the platform guidelines provide that an undertaking's ability to control and process data will be taken into account by SAMR when reviewing abuse of dominance cases, both in assessing market dominance and analyzing conduct. Eg, an undertaking penalizing uncooperative operators with traffic restrictions or search downgrades. So the imposition essentially of new rules for these platforms, trying to pin down when the algorithm is when when anti monopoly anti monopolistic behavior and also behavior that is harming consumers is being obscured by data practices, algorithmic governance and design to obscure, you know, this or that practice and closer scrutiny on market share, uh, but also how competitors are treated, how they are handled, how the algorithms and the operation of other platforms affect their operations. They published a more in-depth review of it later, which we can link to that, uh, uh, you know, kind of dives into a little bit more, but I think the overview for there, that the reason why the platform uh, guidelines had to be issued is because the uh, platform economy is more neb- is nebulous. It's harder to pin down some of the immediate effects and merge and, and apply traditional economic models to it, maybe. Um, some of the monopolies weren't unclear. Some agreements are unclear. It wasn't clear what uh, algorithms or what effect algorithms have immediately on labor. Or on the products themselves, or on how consumers uh, interact with the platforms. Were right. So SAMR was an attempt. Uh, SMR came in with an attempt to also kind of uh, uh, provide standards and, and and guidance for thinking through and criticizing or analyzing and enforcing AML as it related to them, right? And figuring out when a monopoly is actually going on. And and then furthermore, right? There's there's uh, more attempts to or to expand ways to ensure that merger clearance actually is pursued uh that that some entity actually asks for permission to merge with another company that it doesn't pose an anti-competitive threat um to a specific sector so then going from there the draft the draft amendment that was open for public comment uh to the AML uh is is part of an effort that has been ongoing to modify the you know the, anti- the anti-monopoly law on the book, and so the first uh, the first comments, the first draft amendments were you know put up for uh, public consultation in October, and they closed that in November. And these basically offer changes that affect how mergers are controlled, and non-mergers are enforced, and then procedural rules. Uh, as they highlight, they impose particularly significantly higher and harsher penalties on uh, undertakings and transactions that fail to file and introduce fines against individuals for engaging in anti-competitive behavior. But they also include targeting of uh, platform companies. And i um, quoting them here, specifically noting that, one, undertakings shall not exclude or restrict competition by abusing the advantages in data and algorithms technology and capital, and platform rules, and that, too, it would be considered an abuse of dominance if an undertaking with a dominant market position uses data algorithms, technologies, and rules of the platform to erect obstacles and impose unreasonable restrictions on other undertakings. Some of the proposed amendments also include a stop-the-clock mechanism, which would give SAMR more flexibility in uh, reviewing or extending the review of a merger, Um, abandoning the per se treatment of resale price maintenance, increasing the burden of proof in these proceedings with the uh, undertaking parties, and providing a safe harbor for monopoly agreements and expressly imposing liability on cartel facilitators or on firms that are colluding um, in one way or another, either to maybe keep the price of labor low or price of commodities higher, in one way or another, uh, designing or unfairly controlling market conditions. And then the final part of this initial sweep of AML-related and SAMR-related rules, or the first tranche of them, is the elevation of uh, the Anti-Monopoly Bureau, which is a subdivision of of SAMR. By elevating that it allows it, it gives it more staff, higher budget, um, more ability to go after antitrust violations, and also allows it to better implement policy, to control mergers, to supervise monopolies, to investigate and probe market dominance. Uh, to target the platform economy and speci- and you know specifically, right? Yeah, the, the thing to underscore here and, and to emphasize is that a lot of these shifts allow Chinese antitrust authority more uh, Chinese antitrust authorities more ability to closely uh, scrutinize, investigate, probe, and penalize uh, tech companies, especially tech companies that hide behind the veneer of tech to to do and carry out traditional business practices but in anti-competitive forms. Then leads us to the second tranche, which is related to merger control, right? In 2021, they write SAMR unconditionally approved more than 99% of approximately 700 transactions that it reviewed and imposed conditions on only four of them. But it blocked one transaction, which was a proposed major between a, mer, a proposed merger between Huya Inc. and Doyu International Holdings Limited. And this is the only, the third time since 2008 when it was created. They go over a bit over how long it has taken, um, S.A.M.R. to do these cases, uh, on average 14 to 15 days to review, to complete its review of cases under the simplified procedure, 288 days to complete its review of conditionally approved cases, 187 days to complete its review of the single blocked transaction, and that the cases blocked or the cases penalized because of the failure to notify. And so, yeah, then the second tranche just has to do with mergers. And again, and, uh, You know, SAMR is a bureau that hasn't really done much in the past with blocking mergers or penalizing them for failure to notify, Uh, but there's been a market increase and that there's been more scrutiny on mergers that might consolidate a market, consolidate a market, consolidate users of a product, um, strengthen dominant positions, get rid of competition, or impose vertical horizontal monopolies. And then there have also been... Uh, moves by SAMR to either impose pretty strict conditions to ensure that companies that do have mergers don't act in a certain way. And if they do, then, uh, they come down with a punishment or a penalization. And then enforcing, you know, non-merger actions, which basically just means when a company is abusing its market share, uh, acting anti-competitively, fucking with prices, fixing prices, you know, artificially imposing this or that market condition. These are kind of like the generalist shifts that have gone on across 2021 in terms of, uh, changes or to the AML, right. To empower a platform antitrust economy, um, enforcement. Um, and as a result, In connection to this, China has been moving and focusing and being able to move on other industries where the platform economy has tried to rear its head in, right? Whether that be online education, the tutoring economy or the online tutoring economy has has more or less cratered after scrutiny from this. Ride hail and and food delivery companies have shed uh, tens of billions of dollars worth of uh, market value and capitalization as a result of this. Um, Financial tech firms also have peeled back or pulled back. Um, Social media companies have had to be has been under scrutiny either because of misuse of data, screen time, um, targeting miners, algorithmic uh, preferences that are used in in, in 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 tailoring experiences on on platforms. The consequence, or I would say, yeah, the the overall consequence of this, right, or the overall look of this, is an attempt to crush some of the monopolies and and discipline uh, entrepreneurs or firms that might be acting in ways that support otherwise unsustainable activities. Because they're being anti-competitive, so they don't actually have maybe they don't actually have to pay attention to if uh, some business model works, right? Because they crushed the competition, uh, so they're the only game in town, or because they're offering a product or that China doesn't want. Because as another part of the tech crackdown, are crackdowns on um, what the public or social environment is supposed to look like, right? There have been attempts to impose specific codes of conduct and behavior and expression um, that have led to crackdowns on uh, social media, that have led to crackdowns in movies, that have led to crackdowns on the social networks that also are connected to, are also consequences of it targeting uh, some of these firms, right? Because these firms are anticipating more and more probes and reviews, trying to anticipate um, crackdowns and Preempting them with their own sort of uh, their own sort of adaptation to uh, regime changes, or to regime, um, or to the imposition of data regimes, or rights regimes, or labor regimes. All of that leading us to the shifts that have been bubbling and came to a fro. March of this year, right, where China announced that it was going to roll out a pretty comprehensive set of regulations. Known as the Internet Information Service Algorithmic Recommendation Management Provisions. It's a fucking mouthful.
0: Um, (laughs) Come on, they got to do like the U.S. Congress and make this shit into an acronym. (laughs) There is an acronym.
1: It doesn't fucking work. The acronym is I-I-S-A-R-M-P. I'm sure. I'm sure. In the
0: original <laughs> language, it sounds a lot more, uh, oh, yeah. you know, poetic and 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 you know, e- easier to say. <laughs> oh, I'm sure.
1: I'm sure, without a doubt. <laughs> yeah, but um, here, I mean, the rules are pretty. They're pretty fascinating, and I think they are huge. And it would be interesting to see what could, if the US and the EU could ever do them, right? Mm. So mm. essentially, they're coming down to outlawing algorithmic discrimination in part, but I think a better way to think of it is a significant curtailing on what you're allowed to deploy algorithms for and how you're allowed to use them to govern these platforms, right? The prominent example, one of the easiest examples that people might think of are with algorithms that are used in presenting you with content on social media platforms, but also algorithms that are used to set prices in um, on-demand services. Uh, ride hailing, food delivery, grocery delivery, um, and that the price fluctuations, ostensibly, you know, as Wired wrote, ostensibly they're supposed to be because of traffic, right? But a lot of studies, a lot of reports argue that the apps are able to include other factors, including ride history, the phone a person is using, um, you know, the destination where they're going to. I've written about how, for example, Uber and Lyft, Have many times in the past been found to charge you more if you're being, if you're heading to or out of a black neighborhood, right? Or a non white neighborhood. Um, so rule or this sort of, you know, suite of regulation would bar these companies from using personal information to offer different prices for products and services, which again is a staple of how pretty much all of, all of the, apps that we use operate. I mean, Amazon does this. Amazon's probably also another prominent example of this, right? Where prices that you get, even within one browsing session might be different uh, based on what you have bought, what other people are buying. what also the price that the algorithm thinks that you're willing, the highest possible price that the algorithm thinks that you're willing to part with within a range, right? Um, So these rules are going to cover prices, control search results, Recommended videos and content. So, this is going to affect ride hailing, e commerce, social media, streaming, right? And as they write, it's going to extend this crackdown that has targeted the most popular, most valuable companies, but also. Goes in line with as Jathan as you were talking about Jathan right and has as Xi Jinping has kept saying in his speeches right disorderly capital disorderly signals some unhealthy and disorderly signals and trends have occurred in the rapid development of our country's digital economy right and you talked about how it was barbaric and I think as we've talked about you know we're not saying Xi Jinping of course is you know is like preaching for social productivity or social utility and all tech but it doesn't really take a genius. To look at, for example, the American development of Silicon Valley and of the tech sector and see that a lot of it has been led by VCs who style themselves as efficient capital allocators, but are really just like parasites who are well networked, um, you know, sucking on the teeth of, uh, Pentagon. Right, <laughs> or of uh, or of large gluts yeah. of capital. Maybe it's Saudi Arabia. Maybe it's Norway's sovereign wealth fund. Maybe it's their rich best friend. Maybe it's a crypto fortune. You know, this. Maybe it's some financial institution. Right, but that we have created an environment where you can use. So, so most technological development, as a result, is determined by networks of wealthy financiers who all know each other. Private direction. Not really concerned with uh, actual limitations or environments that they're in, except to get a return, right? There's not an actual concern about whether Uber is sustainable, whether urban transport can it be subjected to ride hailing the, in, in the form that Uber imagines, if you can replace all of transit with it. The only envisionment is the possible total market, which is like, what, $70 trillion, as they prop, uh, they prop around in their prospectuses. And so a lot of debt financing and a lot of other people's money funds all of this. And this is important to remember because in China, other industries have started to be penetrated by debt. I mean, by tech, but are saturated by debt ever, uh, you know, uh, the real estate sector. And the dramatic popping of the debt bubble, uh, or of the Evergrande's debt bubble, at least, right? There's been a slow, controlled demolition of of this sector and others because of the high amounts of debt that they've been using to leverage on the uh, to leverage growth, right? On the assumption that it'll all pay for itself eventually. Similar to how we. How we, uh, justify some of these ridiculous valuations for these firms. Uber is going to be worth a trillion dollars. You're getting in at the ground floor and then it's, it's going to be an empire that's going to control the entire transportation system. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be the operating system for your city. I mean, these are quotes from various CEOs and executives. So I think it's important to think about it. When you hear Xi Jinping speaking about disorderly capital, there is an impulse. To dismiss it immediately because it's like, oh, this is like him using Marxist language, but he's not a Marxist. Regardless of what you believe or not, uh, technological development is debt financed across most of the world in, in specific ways that are dangerous and unsustainable to the economies in which they're attached to, right? I think Evgeny Morozov characterized it once as sort of like, The sovereign wealth funds of the world are achieving their returns by investing in firms whose business models are destroying uh, the last vestiges of those welfare states in other countries, right? That's the sort of, and all of that is like greased by Saudi Arabian oil.
0: <laughs> all right. So, if, if if this were ten years ago, that would have been like a slam poetry. These countries are <laughs> investing their, you know, increasing their returns based on investing in the firms that are <laughs> destroying the planet, <laughs> and we'd all be snapping.
1: Right. No, absolutely right. 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 And as a side note, that's led to some companies, something I forgot to talk about. You know, the IPO structure has been abandoned by some of these companies in favor for this variable interest structure. And I forgot to dive into the variable interest structure, right? You know, this structure is, um, basically like a Chinese company sets off and sets up an offshore entity, right? And then you use that to do overseas listing. And then foreign investors will buy into that stock, and this allows you to avoid the the restrictions and limitations that China imposes on foreign investment, and also some of the concerns that China might have in a review about data going overseas, right? And so this is, uh, you know, this is allowed, or this would allow companies who've had their IPOs crushed, or who don't want to go through the long IPO vetting process, where they're in flux because they're in a sector that's currently under a lot of scrutiny and under in the midst of multiple crackdowns. The China formalized a a framework for these variable interest entities at the end of last year uh, that basically said they would need approval from uh, the China Securities Regulatory Commission. Um, And they, you know, they'd have to wait 20, uh, 20 days to submit their materials. Uh, if you do that though, the, the Chinese government is, is pretty much able to, as Reuters reports, um, order a company to dispose of its assets or business if its offshore listing jeopardizes national security. So this is, um, you know, these are the lengths to which this country is trying to impose limits on unsustainable ventures and also just on technology platform and digital companies that it may view as important to industrial policy, to national security, um, and to economic growth, and also to dominance of other aspects of the global technology system, the standard system, the supply chain, right? Um, You know, these are all things that you have to remember that China is constantly keeping in its mind, or f- or juggling around and weighing uh, and weighing in decision making so this uh so this algorithmic uh governance the suite of algorithmic governance regulations um you know they are banning are they trying to explicitly ban the use of personal information and characteristics to uh, to provide different prices but they're also requiring the notification of users when the data is being used um the ability for them to opt out completely um, when algorithms are being used to make recommendations inside of an application. And, and as Wired writes, um, that uh, companies that violate the rules could face fines, be barred from enrolling new users, have their business licenses pulled, or see their websites or apps shut down. But also notes that some elements of new regulations may prove difficult or impossible to enforce because it may be technically challenging to police the behavior of an algorithm that is continually changing due to new input, for uh, instance
0: that that's i think that's a key thing that i'll be really keen to watch you know i think this is uh, we can start wrapping up on on these on these points because you know this is a this is a really new regulation it's only just come into effect a couple months ago um there's a lot to to still be sussed out a lot to still be worked out and and and, and see how it happens but i think i'll be really interested to see how this enforcement happens cuz we see similar kinds of um, anti AI, you know, anti discrimination by AI, um, types of rules, you know, like New York State, for example, you know, I, it's cause I see everything through the, the lens of insurance now. Um, but a couple years ago, the Department of Financial Services for New York State issued, uh, a, a, a new rule. Um, Bill Maher, new rule.
1: <laughs> <laughs> new rule. <laughs> you're, if you're a technology company, fuck off, <laughs> fuck off.
0: <laughs> uh, but New York State uh, issued a, a what they call a guidance letter, right? So kind of like soft rule aimed at uh, life insurers, um, essentially providing them more war- guidance and warning them. Um, that you know, hey, if you know you're using artificial intelligence to uh, price life insurance policies, uh, you know, to do underwriting and pricing of life insurance, make sure that you're not discriminating based on prohibited categories like race or gender or national origin or or any or you know status as a victim of domestic violence, you know, all things that uh, uh, are explicitly protected categories because life insurance. Have <laughs> have discriminated on them in the past, and then regulators are like, "Oh, come on!" Um, but you know, uh, the the new rule is basically being like, or the, the the rule guidance is basically being like, "Hey, make sure you follow the law, um, and if you do, uh, you know, price risk." Um, you know, you have to, uh, using artificial intelligence, then you have to explain why some policyholders receive higher prices than others. You know, just remember. But what, you know, in actual fact, right, this has become intensely hard to enforce, um, and intensely hard to regulate because of the way that, um, these machine learning systems work, because of the, the, the way that they, they don't go in like a human with, uh, kind of pre-established connections that they're going to make, right? That kind of uh, uh, influence what data they're going to use and how they're going to interpret it. They go at it in the opposite way, right? It's like they collect all this data, then find correlations in it, which means that, you know, you come up with all these different proxies for things like race or gender or other protected classes um, and neither can it be explained. Um, This is the, the problem of opacity, right? Like, nobody can explain how these decisions are made or why a machine learning model, um, you will know, reach certain conclusions. And so in practice, these things are intensely difficult to enforce, uh, uh, to explain, to make transparent, to audit, to regulate. Um, so I will be very, you know, this, that's, you know, and granted, this is in an American context where uh, regulatory agencies are vastly understaffed. Um, and underpowered uh, uh, versus in China, where um, these state agencies do have much wider reach and much broader powers. Um, so, but ultimately, I will be very interested to see how um, these these new anti discrimination uh, and AI. Regulations in China are actually put into practice, um, and how they do if they if they do overcome these like technical and political uh, boundaries or, or barriers to actually uh, you know practically enforcing these kinds of regulations.
1: I think also one thing I think you know to watch for. I mean, there's like you know I really all you can really find at this point are like various IP firms kind of evaluating. What they think is going to happen, or what they feel is going to happen. Um, you know, I, t- I, I read over this IP firm, uh, Finnegan, um, and they had an analysis that was more so. I mean, it wasn't even really analysis. It's more like a very brief kind of note. Like, okay, here's you know, like I I S A R M is tar is like you know targeting uh, personalized recommendations. It's targeting algorithmic recommendation service providers, right? It's allowing users to obtain a little bit more autonomy and rights and protections in in their data set and their in their data and how it's discovered and used. And then also just in it's kind of in, uh, mingling with the DSL and the PIPL, um, and that it empowers China's ability to to, to 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 declare that this or that is in the interest of national security, or in the interest of social uh, or public environments, um, um, and that justifies excluding data from discovery. That it justifies censorship. That uh, justifies a probe. That justifies a crackdown. But I think you know the real consequences, the one we're concerned with, and as you've pointed out. You know the what what are gonna what are really gonna be happening with these platforms and the algorithms remains to be seen because there are a lot of things that could be done here. You can see a system where if a company crosses the line, its algorithm is taken from it, and other products and goods and services that are um, that use the algorithm are rendered inoperable. That it has to delete and destroy anything that it used the algorithm to train or develop or to generate data for. Um, and that could be a pretty disruptive thing. I mean, like, you know, maybe one example that's not quite analogous, but could be uh, useful to think through is Clearview was just, um, yeah, ACLU, I think, just won a case against Clearview banning it from uh, selling financial recognition uh, technology to any private business in the United States and any law enforcement entity in Illinois, so I think, for the next 15 years. Um, and the FTC has also banned companies from having their algorithms or using their algorithms and also demanded that they delete data that was generated with them. But the question then becomes, you know, is this really just going to be, is this going to be like a tool set in the enforcement and waived as a threat? Or is this going to be used to usher in a new wave of designing and enforcing and punishing and and re and restructuring the market, right? Because it could be. I think like that's also the 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 open question is how far would China actually go, right? Like, yeah, the fines are fa- like I love the fines. I yeah, fine find Alibaba two billion dollars. Find them another three billion dollars. Find Meituan three billion dollars. I mean, they haven't they buy, find them half a billion. Re- uh, reduce uh, screen time, right? Uh, force them to comply with new data security, but. Re- are they actually going to kill the company's business model because i think you know as we, we as we've talked about some of these companies have to go you know <laughs> frankly i mean i know and 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 maybe that's not realistic but i do think that if you are really serious about restructuring the platform economy uh if you are really interested in sustaining that if you want that to be a part of your economy and you and you're interested in preserving the sustainable ones and getting rid of the unsustainable ones i don't think it's enough to just impose regulatory costs that eventually phase out business models you don't like and re and transform businesses you don't like. You're gonna have to outright kill them, and I am very curious if China will go so far as to outright kill some of the darlings and the unicorns of the tech sector.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before around China, you know, China's willingness to put heads on a pike. But I think it will be really, you know, as we talked about at the top of the show, I think there are a lot of int- there are, as always, a <laughs> yeah. lot of a lot more interesting questions that are unanswered um, yeah. that the man just like continually watching this. Um, right. You know, yeah. I think those questions you just raised around like the larger kind of, you know, what is this? At, what does this look like for the, the larger economy? I think these questions around, um, you know, what does actual regulation like enforcement? look like, right? It's one thing to have regulations on the books, it's another to make them um real uh in terms of enforcement. Um I, I think, you know, as as this uh wired piece lays out, you know, China is kind of is a vanguard here, uh, and, and a lot of other countries are looking to them because they are very much kind of leading out in terms of the, you know, leading the world in terms of thinking about these, these types of regulations, um, and, uh, that, you know, in ways that go far beyond uh, you know, the other kind of tripolar system here of, of the US and, and Europe with well, with Europe kind of being a redheaded stepchild in the middle. Um, but, you know, it's why we, you know, other countries are looking to China quite explicitly in these regulations in terms of thinking about how do they actually uh, unfold and are there is there something we can copy here? There's a, I'll just wrap up the episode. Uh, you know, there's a really interesting quote that this Wired piece ends with uh, by a, a Dutch scholar of Chinese law and regulation um, who's kind of advising some, some, you know, ministers in Europe around this, uh, around these questions, and, and you know, he says, "quote What we've done with the digital realm in the West is to abdicate the sense that the government has a role to play." It's really interesting. China is going after its own in a way; one has to admire that. I think with that, uh, both uh, as always, critical support and a critical eye on anything and everything that is happening in China um, around the the kind of big tech trouble. Um, and regulation so unless you got anything else said bring this episode to a close
1: no I would say if you are also please I'm always looking to read um, analysis of China from Chinese scholars so if you have any suggestions listener and you come across any do let me know I try to rely on legal firms and law firms for the same reasons that we like to read the business press you know, because uh, they're going to be a little bit—they're not are not going to have the flourishing of like the Brookings Institution. Even though I did quote them in this report, please do not come for me. <laughs> <laughs> you <know>? um, <laughs> there's—they're uh, clear-eyed about it because they're concerned about what this is going to mean for their investors. I mean, I was reading one of the most fascinating analyses I read was from a banker who was trying to think about uh, who's who's basically trying to think about what this would mean. For in foreign investors about portfolios and how they're weighing about how they're weighing uh, China inside of them, but also thinking about what the consequences non, like non economic crackdowns would mean, like, or economic crackdowns that didn't seem as large or as important as like fintech, for example, edtech. Like, what does edtech mean for? Like, what does the, the seriousness with which they're applying these fintech crackdowns to sectors like edtech tech mean for investors, right? What, where other sectors should we look for where we might not anticipate a crackdown, but where there will be one because of the role that tech has played in maybe doling out or expanding a private education system? And what other types of private enterprise are going to be rolled back? As part of this shifting in, in China's political economy, so I'm very I'm, want I'm trying to read I would like to read everything more about it because I feel like there's not really a lot of good there's good commentary on individual moves uh, but I would like to read more. I want to read a lot more. so if you have anything give it to me
0: hit hit, hit us up with that absolutely. This is something as I was saying we're, we're always keen to keep an eye on but we're also always uh, aware of how anything to do with China, any kind of reporting, and especially from the West, is always something to be looked at with with, with skepticism. You got you can't you can't trust that mainstream media. Uh, you gotta go to other sources.
1: Uh, <laughs> right. So. Maybe I'll just start. Yeah, I'll just. I mean, yeah, the next episode I'll just quote Xi Jinping exclusively. translated
0: (laughs) yeah yeah that's right that's right all right with that uh thank you all for listening you can find us on patreon.com slash this machine kills for more episodes every single week sometimes we do two-parters sometimes like the episode this week we have uh, uh our ongoing book club series with the dawn of everything um chapter by chapter um, and other times we just just have some fun behind the paywall. Um, so find us there uh, on Patreon. Um, and until uh, until then, see you next time. Adiós.